0: I'm basically useless for a couple of days every four weeks. It's gotten so bad to the point where actually my body goes into shock and I, I get nauseated, I get sick, like fainty a little bit, and it's just constant pain, very, very harsh pain. My blood pressure shoots up. It's all very, uh, very debilitating, and I basically can't work, can't study. I rely on medication basically to just get on. That's
1: Sabine. She's in her second year of clinical science at Macquarie Uni, and she suffers from endometriosis, migraine, and really crippling menstrual cramps. She's one of the many millions of Australians living with chronic and reoccurring pain. And like many, she managed it until fairly recently with codeine that she bought over the counter at the chemist. All that has changed for her since new rules came in last month, requiring people to get a script from the doctor before they can buy codeine.
0: It's already hit me a little bit because I've just recently started my cycle and um, I'm in my third day. So the last couple of days I spent in bed, unable to do anything. So I loaded up on paracetamol and um, it, I mean, it sort of curbed the pain a little bit, but it was nowhere near as helpful as my usual dose of codeine.
1: From The Conversation, you're listening to Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask researchers to help us better understand the issues making news and explain the science behind them. Today, we're talking about pain, how we experience it, and why some of the ways we manage it are changing. The advocacy group Pain Australia says as many as one in five Australians suffer from chronic pain, but that it remains one of the most neglected and misunderstood areas of healthcare. We'll come back to Sabine and the codeine issue in a minute. But first, what is pain?
2: Yeah, what a brilliant question that is.
1: That's Laura Mamosley, a pain expert from the University of South Australia. Over Skype, he told The Conversation's Deputy Health Editor, Sasha Petrova, that this question is actually really tricky to answer.
2: If I was just saying, well, for me, I know what pain is, Uh, it's what I feel. However, if we're in the pain management space I guess or understanding pain then a definition is really helpful. I think it's important to acknowledge that pain by definition is unpleasant and that's got profound evolutionary ecological validity. That's why it works because it's unpleasant. I understand pain as the feeling you get that allows you to protect a particular location and do that in a way that has the minimal impact on the rest of your life. <laughs>
3: What actually happens in your body when you feel it if if I was to just stub my toe and yell out what is the process that is happening in my body at that point
2: Yeah cool so we all through your body are danger detectors right and okay. scientists call these things nociceptors which really just means noxious like noxious weeds and chemicals nociceptors meaning receptors so that it's it's noxious receptors or i say danger detectors And these are nerves, neurons, that are not very clever in that they don't really care what the scenario is. They just care that it's dangerous. And they detect that by a really quick or large change in the environment, in the tissue. So these danger detectors, let's say in your toe, would be activated when you stub your toe and they send a danger message into your spinal cord and that releases chemicals which activate another usually another system that then sends a danger message up into your brain Mm -hmm. and then the, the just the groovy stuff happens i mean it's it's so complex and groovy your brain in that instant evaluates all the information available to it and i guess with the objective of should i protect my toe right now And if the brain concludes, well, on the basis of all the information available to me, yes, I should, then the brain will produce toe pain. And this is where it gets difficult because we don't understand how this mass of neurons and immune cells and all this other stuff produces consciousness, right? Mm. But pain is in consciousness, right? You can't have pain and not know you've got pain.
3: Yeah, so a rock can't experience pain.
2: Yeah, so a rock can't, but a a leg can't. If If you had your leg cut off... And you know, no one should try this, obviously. But (laughs) if you had your leg cut off and you threw it in a big industrial food blender and mashed it up completely, that leg can't hurt. But even cooler is is the person who had that leg five years later can have brutal, severe leg pain without having the leg, which proves to us that it's the brain that makes it.
3: But there's no danger at this point. I mean, the leg is not those receptors are not being activated.
2: Yeah, is that right? cool. That's exactly right. And that's and it's those sort of those sort of observations like you've made that make us more and more convinced that pain is about protective action. It's not about true danger. Right. Okay. But there's a pathway of danger messages or danger pathways. And we know that we can undergo rapid and extensive learning along that pathway. So if you take the if you take the toe, let's say you did injure the toe, you got the toe cut off. Cutting that toe off would be associated with a lot of danger messages arriving at the spinal cord, and quickly the spinal cord ups its sensitivity to danger. It learns danger messages, and the same thing happens in the networks in the brain that produce pain. So you know we now know that the, the central nervous system and the brain learns pain, and what that means is that the stimulus required to trigger pain becomes less and less. You know, People with chronic back pain, if they watch someone else picking up a box, they can trigger their own back pain.
3: In that sense, they should have had an injury in that area at some point to begin with?
2: Is that Yeah, odd? usually, yeah, but yeah. Uh, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't actually have to be an injury, but I would say that the vast majority of occasions, they would have had something happen in their tissues that activated danger detectors. So when you look at the activation, the relationship between activation of danger detectors and pain, it's actually not what you would expect. When you have a catastrophic injury, you're less likely to feel pain than if you have a medium injury, which is quite remarkable, right? But when you think about pain as being a protective device, right? if it's not catastrophic, it's, you know, it's a fracture, which sounds catastrophic, but it's not life-threatening, it makes a lot of sense to make the fracture hurt or to make the shoulder that's been dislocated hurt. But if you've got multiple trauma in a car accident and you're in a life-threatening situation, the brain is clever enough to say, pain's not in your best interest right now. Uh, I remember seeing a fellow in the accident and emergency ward at North Shore Hospital with a hammer stuck in his neck, which was clearly pain-free. He was not hurting from that hammer stuck in his neck. He was pretty relaxed. But with a hammer stuck in his neck, he bumped his knee on a little coffee table and screamed (laughs) blue murder.
3: In an article you wrote for us, you were talking about memories and belief systems yeah. that people have. Yeah. How do they play a part in how you feel pain?
2: To answer your question, it would be easier to say, what does the brain not take into consideration? When we talk about treatment, we, we use this idea of there being an internal protection meter or protection gauge. We call the protector meter. All right, mm-hmm. And when you go through trying to understand your own protector meter, we encourage people to think about, okay, what about the things that you see, things that you hear, the things that you say, the things you... think, the places you go, the people you meet, all of those things we know from empirical data change pain. If you get your blood taken, if you're a man and you get your blood taken by a woman, it hurts more than if it's taken by another man.
3: And so what do you think is, is accounting for that?
2: The social cues. I would presume that we might have something in us socially that suggests it's it's safer to look after yourself when you're in the company of one sex rather than the other but you know the things that that you see i mean some we did an experiment that showed a profound effect of of a colored visual cue so we gave people a a really cold a little bit painful stimulus but we also showed them a, a bright red light or a light blue light and bright red is a really meaningful color for us when it comes to temperature because it says hot. Uh, Light blue on the other hand means cool and not very dangerous. And the, the, the stimulus was always exactly the same. It was very cold stimulus, minus 20 degrees Celsius. It was always exactly the same, but when they saw a red light, it hurt on average three or four points more on a 10 point scale. Pain is not measuring the state of your body tissues. That's not the point. Pain is protecting you from doing damage or protecting you from not allowing something to heal. The problem arises in, in our in the real world when we have pain when the tissues don't need protecting.
3: Yeah, so let's talk about that. Why does that happen? Why do people have chronic pain when there's no tissue that is damaged or needs protecting?
2: Yeah, I think it's I think it varies between individuals. I think there are so many contributors to this that any individual with persistent pain will have a mix of these different contributors. But if, if I was to think about what sort of contributors there are, there's a really strong player is learning within the nervous system. We're very quick to increase the efficiency of danger transmission systems. Uh, and we know that inflammation increases the sensitivity of danger detection. So let's say you've got a low level inflammatory thing going on in your back somewhere. That means your danger detectors are active when there is not actually danger because it's it's a protective adaptation. Yeah. And then the danger message going through your spinal cord just winds up the spinal cord or, or trains the spinal cord. Those sort of concepts fit. Your spinal cord learns how to send danger messages on its own. And if that goes on, then you don't even need your tissues to be inflamed anymore. Your spinal cord starts generating the danger message outside of your awareness, outside of your control. And then that learning process will happen wherever the messages are, are being processed in the brain. So that's one thing that that I think is, is really common in persistent pain, that your system has learnt, your pain system has learnt to be overprotective. And then we add to that any other cue that tells you you should protect. For example, you go to the GP, the GP gets an MRI and the MRI shows all these abnormalities that are actually just because you're 45, but they have to be reported on as abnormalities and that is a very powerful cue to say wow your back's in danger
3: is there any research that has been done at the moment that's that can offer any kind of hope to people with chronic pain who have tried everything
2: i would hate to give anyone the impression that i feel like i've got the answers sure but what i what i am convinced of really is that the progress in pain science in the last 20 years tells us that recovery is back on the table you know the idea of recovering from persistent pain is possible
3: So is that theoretically possible or have there been people who have recovered from persistent and chronic pain?
2: Both of those things. And we have a saying uh, that goes like this, that bioplasticity, which is like neuroplasticity, but of all of your biological systems, bioplasticity got you into this mess and bioplasticity can get you out. So we say people need to train their pain system to Mm -hmm. be less protective, to return the protective buffers back to normal again so how do we do that i mean the 64 million dollar question is for anyone who's in persistent pain is okay well how do i do this there are resources available to learn about pain and to learn why we know you have pain even if you don't have an injury to understand that pain is influenced by the state of your tissues but also what you think what you do what you say what you hear who you're with the context all of those things influence pain Once you understand that, then find yourself a good coach, which is often a a physio or maybe a psychologist or an exercise physiologist, who can guide you in training your pain system to be less protective. The theory would say, yeah, that will work. The empirical data, the evidence, is now coming back in saying, and it does work.
1: This question of what works and doesn't work in managing pain and what the evidence really says on this is at the centre of a heated debate that's raged for years, but flared up recently when new rules came into force in February, banning over-the-counter sales of codeine.
4: Well, what we know from looking at codeine and its use in the population is that for many people it's problematic. That's Fiona Blythe, Professor of Public Health and Pain Medicine at the University of Sydney. She said codeine has side effects like constipation, nausea and tolerance. So some people end up in a cycle where they end up taking more and more, trying to achieve a a certain level of of pain relief. That can also lead to a certain amount of fuzziness in the way you you think about things. And and if you're trying to really manage your resources and troubleshoot how you can help yourself with your pain and navigate things, um, all of those things can be problematic. I asked Sabine, who we heard from at the top of the episode, to join me in the studio with two pain experts to talk about some of these issues. Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognise, as Sabine has you know, so clearly told us, that every person's pain story is, is their own. We talk about chronic pain as if it's one thing, but it's many things. Once chronic pain starts to eat away you know, at the borders of your life, lots of other things come into play. So you start limiting your activities, you might become a bit more withdrawn. Um, you miss out on things that give your life meaning, like your studies or or your social participation. You know, and in many cases, if not most cases, then the thought that maybe a a pill is going to fix everything is is not right. But we also know from a lot of research that a lot of people are very interested in finding out what the other alternatives are.
5: And so what we've uh, done over the years is to rethink the problem.
1: That's Professor Michael Nicholas.
5: I'm a professor and clinical psychologist at the University of Sydney Pain Management Research Centre Royal North Shore Hospital.
1: Professor Nicholas said it's important to remember that pain is never just pain. It's often a cluster of problems.
5: And as Fiona indicated, uh, one thing can lead to another. So you stop doing things in response to pain. When you do try to move, it's more painful. When you stop doing things that are important to you, you can start getting depressed. And when you get depressed, you don't feel like doing things, so you do less. And uh, depression makes pain feel worse. You get often angry, uh, frustrated, uh, feel helpless. Uh, sleep problems are frequent and with worse sleep becomes worse pain and, and vice versa. So uh, it has a cascading effect through your life. And so what we're doing is saying to stop thinking about just that experience of pain for which we really don't have a cure once it becomes chronic. But to start thinking about all these other effects now the important thing about those is we can change those. People can change these things. They don't have to suffer like that. But they've got to start sort of reformulating the problem.
1: The key, says Professor Nicholas, is finding out how people can live their lives despite pain and perhaps accepting that there's always going to be a level of pain there.
5: Review after review of things like opioids, um, of which coding you know, is a, is it comes into the category of, Uh, that really just show uh, how inadequate they are for achieving those outcomes. So the longest randomised controlled trial is 16 weeks. And yet we're talking about problems that go on for years. So rather than thinking about what treatment you need, I'd think about what problems have you got and how might we go about helping you to deal with those because the evidence is that if you do, you'll actually have less pain.
1: I asked Professor Nicholas to tell me more about what that actually meant in practice.
5: What we try to identify, what are the psychological contributors? Are they fears? Are they unhelpful beliefs mm, anxiety, or expectations? Yeah. Are they anxiety or depression? Uh, because these are treatable. You can change those. Yeah. And then on the environmental side, we look at you know what support someone has, uh, what pressures are they living under? Are they studying or are they under a lot of time pressure, financial pressures. We deal with a lot of injured workers and they've got to battle the workers' compensation system. So we need to know about all those to make sense of someone's pain and the problems they're having with it. And that will help us to assemble a management plan.
1: Sabine, I wondered if you could respond to some of these things that we've just been talking about.
0: Um, I mostly agree with Professor Blythe and Professor Nicholas in terms of opioids not being the proper way to treat chronic pain. Um, I've read some studies, I understand the addictive natures of the addictive nature of these medications. Chronic pain treatment will, should require personalized diagnosis and just treating the root cause of the pain. Yes, I understand all of this and I agree with it. But in the meantime, we have someone with a having migraine attacks or a migraine episode for a whole day and they can't even, they're photophobic. They can't go outside. Um, they can't subject themselves to to an hour and a half waiting in in a physician's office to get that codeine script. I think for these kind of pains and these kind of regulations, they came in a little bit premature before we've explored other ways to treat this kind of pain. How can we sort of cover that gap in between treating these pains because so for my migraine, I would be taking codeine one day. So for one day, it's not like I'm going to be taking it every day. Um, I exercise personal responsibility in terms of not exceeding the recommended dose, and it was fine. Yeah, I just don't understand why these regulations kicked in now. I can't imagine just having a migraine episode and having to go and crawl into my doctor's office and wait for a script. It's just not feasible for me. Fiona, what do you think about
4: what Sabine just said about that gap between where we are and where we sort of need to be? Well, I think Sabine's articulated it uh, very well. And, you know, if I may say, I think you've got a degree of insight around balancing risks and harms that a lot of people don't have and they don't have that insight about when to stop. But, you know, I do appreciate that for you that it's a episodic thing and that now you, you've got a barrier to effective management. But I guess the other thing is if you have a good general practitioner, then this provides an opportunity, not when you're in the acute grips of, of an episode of, of pain, to have a conversation with them about, well, now this has happened, what, what else, what are, my, what are my additional options that, that I'm, I might be able to explore to help me manage my health better? And so what's a barrier, I, I hope, will also be an opportunity.
0: I mean, this is all great, but you go to, to see a GP and you've got something, like a pain somewhere, and the, the first thing they do is they take out a pad and they just, like, prescribe you some opioids <laughs> and this is and i've i've seen that in many gps and it's just so it's like bandaging a big hole in in the dam with like a little bit of a, <laughs> it's like putting a band-aid on a yeah, broken leg yeah. that that's
4: absolutely right and part of my my day job is is involved with medical student education and you know we we're pushing really hard to have a properly integrated curriculum in pain management because when I went through medical school we had about one hour on acute pain and the whole concept of chronic pain and how it's so very different from acute pain was was not something that was ever on our horizon mm. and um, and I think unfortunately your experience is is really all too common so I think that's part of the integrated approach is mm. educating and empowering patients and consumers so you go in expecting more than that um, but also helping um, people who are working in the health workforce, helping to upskill them and training the next generation as well so that we, we have a really big system shift in how people like you experience interacting with healthcare systems.
0: Do you believe with these regulations coming in um, that people would turn more to self-medication, whether being with other kind of medication or alcohol or anything?
4: Look, I think that's a a potential risk, particularly if people don't have good access to a general practitioner in in some areas. But that's, I think, why we're very keen to, to say that a general practitioner is not the only gatekeeper to better understanding and also some tools to help you manage it. And what we need to do is to to let people know that so they don't feel that, that they have to, to find an alternative that's actually also going to give them harm in the long run.
1: Fiona Blythe and Michael Nicholas said there are lots of great resources online for people experiencing pain and for specialists and GPs too. They said a good place to start is the ACI Pain Management Network which you can just find by googling ACI Pain Management Network or by visiting Pain Australia at painaustralia.org.au and I just want to say a special thanks to Sabine Hamad for sharing her insights with us. The codeine crackdown is part of a bigger issue here, higher rates of opioid use, often among people who first started taking it to manage their pain. Opioid addiction in Australia is not yet at the famously high levels seen in North America, but the problem is growing. For this story, Ben Ansel spoke to Suzanne Nielsen, a lead researcher at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre.
6: I think there's a big shift in the knowledge, certainly from the pain specialist. We're seeing uh, much less of a tendency to use opioids and definitely not to use opioids first line.
7: Australia's looking to change the way we use opioids. As more is discovered about the addictive nature of prescription opioid medication, new approaches to pain management are being explored.
6: So we've got multiple factors that have contributed to the increase in um, pharmaceutical opioids. So those include an ageing population and greater chronic pain and other comorbidities within that population. It also includes a a trend to be prescribing opioids more for chronic non-cancer pain. And I think that's an area where um, the pain experts are now realising that there isn't necessarily good evidence for that long-term prescribing and that the outcomes haven't really been demonstrated. So that, But that was one sort of large contributor to the increase in opioids. We've also had a huge increase in the number of opioids that are available in Australia. So real, I guess, proliferation of different types of preparations of opioids combined with the wider number of reasons that they're used for.
7: Suzanne Nielsen is a lead researcher at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. Having decades of experience in the realms of addiction, Suzanne is now focused on identifying and responding to prescription and over-the-counter drug-related problems. I spoke to her about the rising levels of prescription drug addiction, if fentanyl is an issue in Australia, and how the stigma around addiction is preventing people getting the help they need. Suzanne believes that increasing rates in opioid dependence have somewhat been caused by outdated methods of pain treatment. Methods she was taught when she was starting out.
6: 20 years ago, for example, when I did my undergraduate training, um, we were trained that you couldn't develop a dependence to opioids if you had a pain condition. So I think there was less caution around these concerns that we've now um, seen are very real. So um, I guess, for example, in in some of our research at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre with a chronic pain cohort, we see, you know, one in four, one in five, depending on the definition you use, meet criteria for either addiction or dependence to opioids. So that's much, much higher than was originally thought. And I don't think we would have seen these large increases in opioid use if that was realised 20 years ago.
7: But not all addiction to pain medication has come as a result of outdated practices or over-prescribing. Australia is also experiencing higher levels of recreational use of prescription opioids.
6: Well, we have seen an increase in the use or the non-medical use of pharmaceutical opioid medications in Australia and we have seen a corresponding increase in the number of people seeking treatment for dependence and also the number of um, cases where there's been, I guess, cases occurring in our mortality statistics. And we saw last year, for example, around 600 um, accidental overdoses with opioids in Australia and the majority of those, 70 per cent, were attributed to pharmaceutical opioids.
7: It's important to understand the difference between legal over-the-counter medication and prescription medication. On the bottom end of the scale, there are non-opioid drugs for mild pain, which include paracetamol and anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen. The next step up is opioid drugs prescribed for mild to moderate pain and include drugs such as codeine and tramadol. These drugs are often combined with paracetamol in a single tablet. As of February this year, codeine products that are currently available over the counter will require a prescription. This follows a decision by the Therapeutic Goods Administration citing rising levels of codeine addiction as their reason. On the high end of the scale, for more severe pain, there are stronger prescription opioid medications such as morphine, fentanyl, and oxycodone. It's these that present the biggest potential problems of dependence. America and Canada are in the midst of an opioid epidemic. In 2016 alone, there were over 42,000 US drug fatalities involving opioids. This accounts for both legal prescription opioids and illegal opioids. Much of the increase was driven by the rise in illicit synthetic opioids like fentanyl, so are we bracing for something similar in australia according to suzanne illegal fentanyl does not currently present a major issue in australia with only a few documented cases
6: there was a case series that was published from victoria um, where they concluded in that in that publication that there was nine cases of fentanyl contaminated heroin we've seen these cases but we haven't seen i guess a widespread pattern or that, we haven't seen evidence of it. But again, if you're not monitoring for it, you might not see it, so it's one of those things where we really have to um, keep a very sharp focus on this because the public health implications of missing it could be huge.
7: Being able to detect rises in fentanyl in Australia is hugely important.
6: If it happens in Australia, it's critical that we know early and we're able to respond. We have a current study at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre where we are um, monitoring for signs of illicit fentanyl use in our heroin supply, and that's something that's been done in collaboration with uh, Dr Monica Barrett and also the staff at the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre. We had one wave of data collection that was presented recently at the APSAD conference, and we didn't see evidence of illicit fentanyl sort of that was you know contaminating heroin supplies at that point in time but we're going to monitor that every three months in an ongoing project because we think it's so important that if we see signs of what's happening in the U.S. here that we know early and we're able to educate people and particularly to make sure that people are aware of how to respond to an overdose, that they have naloxone on them, that they're trained in how to use naloxone all of those important public health steps so that is absolutely something that we're monitoring for and that we are um, ready to send a quick message if we get signs of that in the sydney area
2: as
8: northeast ohio first responders rescue a woman in the middle of an overdose
0: narcan or naloxone has saved countless lives since it was introduced a couple of years back
6: naloxone, which is an antidote for opioid overdose. So it's a medication that can be administered if someone is experiencing an overdose, potentially while they're waiting for an ambulance, you would have a a carer or a partner that knew this medication was available and they could administer this to reverse the effects of an overdose. This medication is now available over the counter. So we can actually have pharmacists supplying and GPs um, prescribing to make it cheaper for people, but it doesn't require a prescription. And in this way we can have a medication that can be used to reverse the effects of opioid overdose available in people's homes and that's been a critical strategy in the u.s to try and um, reverse opioid overdoses and we know when it comes to opioid overdoses time is is crucial and so the sooner that we can reverse the effects of opioids and get oxygen back to the brain and and you know those kinds of things will really sort of reduce the amount of harm so um, that's a key strategy that pharmacists can now supply to patients without um without a prescription if they identify somewhere where there's a risk. And for our last story today,
1: the conversation's education editor, Sophie Heiser, takes a look at another kind of pain and what schools can do to help.
9: Before we begin, because we will be talking about mental health, suicide, and self-harm in this episode, I'd like to remind listeners that you can reach Lifeline at 131114, and Kids Helpline can be reached at 1 800 800 If you at any time are feeling emotionally distressed and need advice or support, please do not hesitate to reach out to one of these organizations.
4: You no doubt will have heard about one of this summer's saddest stories the suicide of 14-year-old Amy Dolly Everett as a result
0: of bullying.
9: The very sad news about Amy Dolly Everett drew a lot of attention, but experts warn us that there are helpful and harmful ways of talking about these subjects.
8: I would say most schools are working on those things at the moment, but there's always scope for improvement.
9: That's Sarah Stanford, a Macquarie University researcher who looks at preventing self-harm in schools, churches, and other community settings. In a recent article on The Conversation, she argued that talking about suicide and self-harm in schools can save lives, if it's done right.
8: Uh, you just, you know, you got the whole school together and you just sat everyone down and you said, today we're going to talk about self-harm and, and there's all these different ways that people do it. And, you know, you could definitely go about this in a very negative way. Um, It's not going to contain any graphic images or descriptions of behavior. And I think one of the key points is it needs to be done within a very positive Mental Health and Resilience Program, it needs to be done within a positive and supportive community. Being able to really talk quite honestly about help-seeking, what to look for in a friend and how to get help if you're worried about them, um, breaking down some of the barriers to disclosure. So we're talking about having positive conversations. So, yes, it can encourage young people to talk about it, It can bring up the subject, but we then need to put strategies in place to deal with that as opposed to putting our head in the sand and saying, well, the solution is obviously to not talk about it because that's not the solution. Uh, There are some very careful ways to do it. And there are a couple of programs that actually have some research supporting that this is a safe way to do it.
9: The research also indicates, much like media guidelines around suicide reporting, that talking positively and not giving people something to copycat is important.
8: There's the Safe Talk program, uh, which has got some good uh, research supporting it just in terms of showing that uh, the students felt better after doing like, less suicidal ideation after the program and they felt better able to reach
9: out for support. Safe Talk is a workshop that says it trains anyone over the age of 15, regardless of prior experience or training, to become a suicide alert helper. That means getting practical insights on how to identify someone at risk and connect them to resources that can help. Another program Sarah said was backed by good evidence is called Signs of Self-Injury, which focuses on identifying and helping students get help when they're self-harming. I think one area of challenge
8: for schools as well is that we also need parents to know how to respond because young people will need to talk to their parents about it and parents can feel quite overwhelmed talking about uh, self-harm or suicidal thoughts. Another aspect of it is online services. That can really help people because it can be so much less of a, a barrier to go online and do an online chat and to read some resources online, rather than to go and walk into a counsellor's office, that can be much harder. You know, an extra school counsellor, more funding for welfare staff, I think that would really help schools so much. Um, Obviously funding for the research, so that we have increasing confidence about how to approach suicide and self-harm prevention in the schools.
9: Sarah said schools are an important part of the suicide prevention picture, because that's the place where young people are all in one spot. Much of the evidence-based programs focus on spotting warning signs among students, and it's not always what you'd imagine.
8: So not everyone who self-harms or is thinking about suicide, not everyone, uh, you know, is depressed, anxious, has low self-esteem. You know, there's a lot of very strong risk factors that we're familiar with, and it's good to be familiar with that those things are risk factors and that they can increase the risk. But that's. It can become a limiting way of looking at the situation because there could be young people that are self-harming. There are young people that are self-harming that don't have any of those typical risk factors. They're not depressed, they're not anxious. Some of them are just doing it as a way of coping because they've seen that. They've got that idea from someone, uh, whether it's in a movie or from a friend, and they're using it as a as a coping strategy. Uh, they're using it to handle their emotions. They're not always depressed and anxious. You know, there's some young people that are actually showing more aggressive um, and more antisocial behaviours that are also at greater risk uh, for self-harming.
9: So, what signs can people look for?
8: Yeah, so common things that teachers would look for. Um, Obviously, if there's any effort being made to cover up wounds, so um, someone might be wearing long sleeves in the middle of summer, uh, someone might have some cuts and they might not be able to sort of explain where they came from, or the explanation might just sound a little bit strange, they might be sneaking off at strange times, or they might be drawing pictures in class of things that are a little bit dark and a little bit concerning. Um, They might just be doing that privately, but the teacher might just see it. Or even in their creative writing, there might be some darker themes. There can be so many different things. Sometimes it's just a change.
2: Just to all the parents, um, please check your children. Talk to them, talk to them
4: about their relationships, talk to them about their bullying, whichever way
2: it might be happening. Please just talk to your children and anybody else. And remember, speak even if your voice shakes.
9: That was Tick Everett speaking to the media after the death of his daughter, Dolly. What he's saying there, Sarah says, is good advice for parents. You know, sometimes
8: when we hear really tragic stories of of bullying and and, um, abuse being carried out online, unfortunately... The young people or the children haven't always asked for help. Sometimes they've really kept that to themselves. So that can be unhelpful. Um, And so we need to, as parents and as carers and as mentors, we need to be building in the habits from an early age that we talk about what's happening online, that there's nothing that you can't talk about and sort of having that dialogue about what's going on. But what if you don't see a sign? Sometimes we read a story in the media of a tragic death, uh, and the family sometimes say, "I just, I didn't even know. I just didn't see that coming." It's a very difficult thing. Um, there's a lot of pain in that, and people can sort of torture themselves trying to go through, "What did I miss? What, what were the signs?" and trying to analyze that. And sometimes in hindsight people may see a sign that they missed at the time they didn't realize that that was a sign Uh, and so better education about warning signs can help with that but sometimes there wasn't a sign to be seen as well some people are very very good at hiding things so it's not always going to look like the typical path of deteriorating and being really obvious and seeking multiple services and just not it, not resolving. It doesn't always follow that path. Sometimes it can feel like it comes out of the blue for some families. Um, doesn't mean it came out of nowhere for that person, but it just doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. But when we're talking about why people are doing it and is it just for attention you know a lot of the time it's a really response to a very deep pain it's been expressed that it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem so what people are going through at that time is so dark and so difficult that they feel like there's no other way out often when people make that decision they actually don't feel like there's another way out they often feel like the world would be better without them and that's so untrue and the people around them can see that but you can't always see that when you're in that dark moment and even now while people are listening to this podcast there might be people that are in a dark place and that just even thinking about this topic could be quite triggering so you know please make sure you reach out for help if you're listening to this now and and you are feeling like the world might be better without. You. That's a very difficult place to be in and it's not true, but if you can't see that at the time, then you need to get help where other people can help you see that.
9: After I recorded this interview with Sarah, the Turnbull government announced an additional $110 million in funding for mental health programs and headspace centres. Up to $46 million of the funding will go to Beyond Blue for its integrated school-based mental health in education initiative. Sarah says she's excited to see how this benefits young people in the years to come. Again, if you're feeling emotionally distressed and need advice or support, please reach out to Lifeline at 131114 or online at www.lifeline.org.au. Kids Helpline at one 800 55 or online at www.kidshelpline.com.au or Headspace at www.headspace.org.au.
1: Trust Me, I'm an Expert is produced by The Conversation, and we put out a new episode at the start of every month. Special thanks to The Conversations intern, Ben Ansel, to Conversation editors, Sophie Heiser and Sasha Petrova, and to the academic experts who made time to help us better understand pain. Laura Moseley, Fiona Blythe, Michael Nicholas, Suzanne Nielsen and Sarah Stanford. Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this episode from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com.